We're set? Okay. All right. This is, uh, I'm still getting used to this. This has been three weeks I've been here, and one was a confirmation last week, uh, Palm Sunday, and this one, uh, Resurrection Sunday. And so I'm, I've spent a year doing uh, messages with the script right in front of me and not looking at you, and so I'm going to have to figure this out, get my rhythm back. I'll have the same problem with the classroom. The Disciple Center is unique, probably in several ways. Not that we're trying to be unique. Uh, we're trying to be a community of faith that is as complete and authentic as we can. And that includes observing the holy days of the Bible and their various forms and emphasis, as well as the ones that have been added by Judaism and Christianity as part of the unfolding of the faith. In that process we better understand the relationship between the Jewish and Christian expressions of the Holy Days, as well as the Holy Days themselves. And that is done with the intent of our liturgy and our observation of the Holy Days. It's really there to instruct us and to reinforce us in the deep meanings of our faith. And really, when we do these things correctly, what we do is we bring about the experience of truth. Uh, there, there is something in going through the prescriptions of the rituals in that sense when they're done correctly. Today, of course, we celebrate the most significant truth which we hold, which is the conquering of death. The resurrection of Jesus is the heart and foundation of all of our faith and all of our hope. Because if this event didn't take place, then as the Apostle Paul reminds us, we are still in our sins and those who have died perished. Now I'm at the age now where I know a lot more people who have died than I know people and meet new people that are living. And so that really has an impact on me that if there is no resurrection of the dead then they are gone. Uh, but our confession is that Jesus died, that he was buried and that he rose from the dead. And so that's why we say on this day, he is risen. Correctly, yes. Now, in each of our holy days and in each of our rituals, there are symbols that represent that truth that we hold. And uh, this week has several of them. So the palms reminded us of Jesus' interest into the city. The Seder plate and the cup remind us both of the Passover and the Exodus and the Last Supper. The cross, which is probably the most historically used symbol of Christianity, not without its controversies, uh, reminds us of the atoning death of Jesus. And the empty tomb symbolizes his resurrection. That one's always been difficult. So, you know, uh, I remember in one church, uh, we were doing cantatas all the time. So we built the empty tomb and put the stone in front of it. It was built actually over the organist. And she loved that because she was an introvert and didn't like to be up there being seen. And she said, can you just leave it here? Uh, although Linda and I, in I think it was Monsalon, we were at a church, a cathedral that was built for the Christians by the Jews. There were stars of David in all of the top windows. And instead of the crucifixion over the altar, there was a tomb and Jesus coming out of it. Uh, 
whoever the Jewish designers in there really got the essence of what this was. So all of these things remind us of uh, these things. They're not relics. They're not souvenirs. They are symbols of that meaning of truth. So today I want to talk about one, and I want to introduce it into our observance. And that is the burial shroud of Jesus. It, of course, is the link between the cross and the tomb. And it's actually connected to the resurrection itself. In Matthew chapter 27, we read these words. Matthew 27, verses 57, following. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. And he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. And he laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Now, we're told in this passage that he took a clean linen cloth. The word for this is not simply one that was clean as if it had been washed. But it means the idea of pure. In other words, it's linen without a mixture of other materials. Uh, it's not adulterated in that sense. It's correct as it's the appropriate thing to be done. Almost as if we'd say it was kosher. Uh, and it was holy in that it was intended for that purpose of burial. A uh, very important description of this. Now in Mark's Gospel... Uh, chapter 15, beginning at verse 43, we get these words. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate, and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time, and summoned the centurion, and he questioned him as to whether Jesus was already dead. And ascertaining that from the centurion that he was, he granted the body to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen cloth, took him down and wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid it in the tomb, which had been hewn out of a rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. In Luke, we have a additional statement about this. In Luke 23, verse 50 to 56. A man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and he wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in the tomb cut into the rock and there was where no one had ever lain. And it was preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. Uh, and the women who had come with him followed and saw the tomb and how he laid the body. So Luke also gives us a clear understanding about this linen cloth. Now, 
it's not unusual for Matthew, Mark, and Luke to tell us the same things in the Gospels. That's why they're called the Synoptic Gospels. Often, something is missing in one of them, and certainly there is clearly different information in the Gospel of John. But in John 19, we get these words. John 19, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Judeans, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. He came and took away the body. Nicodemus, who had come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, which no one had ever been laid. And because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now, as I said, it's not unusual for something to be found in three of the Gospels. But there are very few things that are found in all four. And this one has all four of them. Uh, this linen cloth, then, is clearly an object of the Apostles' statements. And John tells us that this was specifically connected to the burial custom of the Jews. Now, we know it was a quick, quick and incomplete preparation because the Gospels tell us that the women then later prepared other spices and they were going to bring them to the tomb on Sunday morning, which is what Luke tells us. Now, I want you to notice that John is going to mention the linen cloths three more times in chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark, and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciples. They have taken away the Lord from the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. And the two were running together, but the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stood and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. So Simon Peter also came, following him, entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. And the face cloth, which had been uh, on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb, then also entered, and he saw and believed, for they had not yet understood the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Now we're told the disciples, Peter, and we're assuming John is the other disciple, younger and can run faster, um, both saw the wrappings lying there with no body, and they saw the face cloth, a smaller piece uh, that used to cover the head and face, rolled up in a place separate. So clearly this was not the stealing of a body. The wrappings and the headcloth tell us a different story. At the moment of the resurrection, Jesus was in the linen cloth. 
And for some people, presumably, the headpiece was in place. It may not have been in place. And I say the moment of the resurrection because that's the description that Paul gives us in describing our own resurrection that will come. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In verse 50 of the 15th chapter of Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says this, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of the eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Because this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. And when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on the immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? I want you to catch something. There is nothing in this passage about being caught up and gathered with the Lord. That will happen. But that's not what Paul's talking about. The moment, the twinkling of the eye is not going up to be with Jesus. It's the transformation in a moment from death to life that we will experience. And this is a different kind of resurrection. And that's what happened to Jesus. Instantly and through the wrappings. No one needed to remove the wrappings from Jesus. They had to do that with Lazarus, you recall. Right? Let him loose. Very different thing. So I think that the linen cloth is an important part of the narrative. It was present and in that sense part of the resurrection. It was a witness to the events, if you will, a sign. And this is why every year at our first fruit service, when we gather the first fruits and bring them in, as you enter the sanctuary, you see the white cloth that's back in the back and the smaller headpiece rolled up on the Lord's Supper table. And it remains there for the days from the resurrection until Ascension Thursday when we remove it. Now, last year, I purchased an additional reminder, but because of the shutdown, uh, I couldn't introduce it into our liturgy, but now we can. So many of you are familiar with the Shroud of Turin, that linen cloth has a fascinating, frustrating, and controversial history. I was first introduced to that uh, linen cloth uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, at a Southern Baptist convention when there was a... uh, Uh, display uh, there. And I have been both intrigued and doubtful of its origins. Many times over the years when somebody asked me about it, I would say it can't be the burial shroud of Jesus because the Gospel of John tells us about another piece and this thing's got the whole head and everything there. Well, as it turns out, in recent times, they have found a piece that uh, may be the headpiece 
and the blood stains on the shroud and on that head piece match exactly. So I'm rereading books and looking at stuff again, but I want you to know something. I don't need a shroud to tell me that Jesus rose from the dead. I got the text. I'm a text Christian. I don't need archaeology. I don't need anthropology. I don't need anything, right? This is why Paul says, first and foremost, I told you that he rose according to the scriptures. Then he was seen by people. That's secondary evidence. Okay? The real evidence is, the scripture says, he rose from the dead. So, I, uh, I want you to know that uh, there's been pollen and dirt and blood testing on these things. Uh, interesting that the blood type was AB, a common type of the Middle East. The pollen seems to match. I have no idea what the truth is about that. I don't really care about that. Nothing that we have in here is real. These are all symbols for that purpose. But I purchased a life-size copy of the shroud, uh, which we will display, probably not in the sanctuary, but in the chapel or the library from Resurrection Sunday to Ascension Thursday as a symbol of the resurrection. And I will also consider discussing uh, it in a group or maybe have some reading groups together uh, to look at the history and the controversies of the shroud if there's interest in it. But I at least want to show it to you. I tried to purchase the whole one because it's a double shroud that went over the back and over the head, but that was unavailable and they kept putting me off. So all I could get was the front uh, part of it. So you know, if you know anything about the shroud, it uh, it has uh, the face and the and the impact here. These things are from silver that burned it when it was in a fire and the silver melted into that. One of the problems is these edges appear to have cotton in them and they were woven in in the Middle Ages when they did the carbon-14 dating. That's what they were dating. So there really is a push to uh, re-look at it again. But I thought it would be something for us to remember and to look at. It's interesting that it is a person who's crucified He's got a stab wound. He's got thorn wounds in the head. Uh, and there are people who believe that this is nothing more than a, uh, uh, an art piece that was done in the Middle Ages, but they've not been able to, uh, to do that. Can you roll that back up? So what we'll do is we'll make that available in the, uh, um, in the chapel and, uh, or in the library so that we can uh, discuss it. And as I said, uh, nothing at the D.C. is real. The ark that we have is not the real ark, right? Uh, We all know that one's in Washington. Indiana Jones put it in there, right? Uh, They are representations. They're visual aids that help us and remind us and give us a way of having a sense of the experience of what they represent. The resurrection of Jesus is true. And we know that by the testimony of of the apostles found in the Gospels and the Epistles, and foreshadowed in the prophets, as as Paul says, he rose from the dead according to the Scriptures. Now, our Lord told us that he was the resurrection and the life. And the real shroud, wherever it is or was, was on him 
in the tomb when God raised him from the dead. And therefore, it had the closest perspective of when that resurrection took place. And since a stone or an open tomb makes for difficult symbolism, uh, I thought this might be a way for us to, to have that symbol. Regardless of the, the reality of the Shroud of Turid and the other piece that's been found, we know that he is risen because the scripture says so. And so, let's pray.